This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today uh, we're going to talk about a wonderful book published by Oxford University Press. It's called Philosophy Illustrated, 42 Thought Experiments to Broaden Your Mind. The book has been edited and illustrated by Helen de Cruz. She's a professor of philosophy at St. Louis uh, University. And there are about 42 different contributors, um, 42 different philosophers, all coming up with a different uh, thought experiment and then reflecting on the thought experiment. So this podcast is a bit different from others that I've uh, done before because it's an edited collection. I'll first start by talking to um, Dr. Helen Cruz, who edited the collection, and then I'll be talking to a number of uh, contributors, such as Peter Singer, Tamar Gandler, Professor L.A. Paul, um, and they all talk talk about the thought experiments and explain how uh, explain what philosophical issues trying to, they're trying to highlight uh, through these thought experiments. Dr. Helen. Uh, De Cruz, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, <laughs> Pleasure to have you here. So to begin with, it's a wonderful book because uh, as I uh, said in the introduction, there are 42 thought experiments. There's a thought experiment about one paragraph, which is very easy to read, very relatable. And then uh, one philosopher um, has a two-page reflection on the thought experiment with a series of questions, you know, to kind of trigger trigger the mind. So can you tell us first how the idea of the book came about? So the book, one of the distinctive features of the book is that um, it, so there's several several features that, that make it different, I think. So there have been a few books that collect thought experiments because thought experiments really are the bread and butter of philosophers. Like they, they love to think through thought experiments and to just sort of imagine different things that could happen. But um, one of the ways in which it differs is that uh, it's an illustrated uh, edition. So I started out drawing these thought experiments uh, several years ago, I think about maybe five years ago or something. Um, 
and I would sit drawing thought experiments in like conferences or put them on social media. And then people started saying, hey, this is so fun. This is like, you know, aren't you going to publish them as a book? And I thought, no, it's just a, it's just a hobby. But then eventually uh, several people convinced me that this was actually a viable idea. Um, and so that, that's actually how, how it took shape, uh, the idea of, uh, and then I thought, uh, so, so one idea, I was approached by a trade publisher uh, who didn't take the book eventually. And they said, look, we are really interested in the pictures. Um, but what I thought was, uh, I'm not an expert on all these different thought experiments. Like they span different philosophical traditions. They span a wide range of cultures. Like I'm not an expert in, in all of them, like that would be impossible. So I wanted to have for each thought experiment, as you mentioned, an expert, somebody who does know about the tradition, in some cases, even the people who came up with the thought experiments themselves, uh, if they were still, you know, alive and willing, so recent thought experiments. Um, and so I proposed that to the trade book uh, publisher and they didn't want it. They said, look, we want you to write everything and draw everything, it's just too much effort. So then I thought, well, that's not my vision. So, so that, that's where it ended. Uh, but then I heard uh, that Oxford University Press might be interested in this volume, uh, particularly for their, uh, for their series of books, textbooks for students. And they thought that this might be an interesting and different way to teach philosophy. Like we're always looking for different ways to teach intro. And so I talked to, um, the the person at the time who was the editor and I, i'm now blanking on his name but anyway i talked to him at a conference uh, a few years ago uh, and and so we talked about uh, shaping this book uh, and then eventually i sent in a formal book proposal and really to my delight oxford university press did go with the vision of the different even though they said it'll be difficult to get like all the permissions and so on sorted out of 42 different reflections written by actually more than 42 experts because some of them are co-authored so i think about 44 experts in total so that's how that uh, came into being uh, fascinating story as you write when, when I was going through the book I kind of imagined it must have been a huge task to get as you said for more than 42 authors to get them to write the thought experiments um, to reflect on that come up with the questions and then put it all in one uh, edition and I, I and I wish our listeners could see the book the illustrations are simply magnificent um uh, so I do encourage our listeners just to go and pick up the book and just have a look at the illustrations as well. And as I said, they're quite relatable. And you mentioned a good point. I wanted to ask about the target audience. So it's it's a it's a book that I feel that even high school students can read, and even not necessarily students, I can read it to my you know, parents and ask them to start. I've, I've been talking to my wife about some of these thought experiments. So can you tell us about the intended audience of this book? I think eventually, so how I look at the book, uh, the way I conceive it is that I think that anybody who has like a high school diploma or maybe indeed even is in high school should be able to read this book. So I also asked the, the people who wrote the reflections to like sometimes they wrote very highbrow and say like, make it a bit easier uh, because I wanted this to be like, 
an intellectual box of chocolates, right? So you don't have to read the whole thing. You could just read one. It makes philosophy less scary. So my my audience could be somebody who just, you know, picks up the book and is just interested in reading a little bit of philosophy, you know, just like people like poetry, for example, like they don't want to read necessarily the whole bundle, but they could just read like one or two, or they could read the whole book, like you can do that too. Uh, but I'm thinking uh, it could be used for educational purposes and uh, Oxford University Press definitely helped me to sort of shape it in that way that it could be used that way. And I've heard in the meantime of several uh, British high schools that are using this for their A-levels philosophy, so for their philosophy courses. Uh, so it can be used in that way. But originally, uh, when I first thought about the idea, I thought of sort of like coffee table interested lay reader. <laughs> Yeah, I guess a box of chocolate was a great, uh, great metaphor. <laughs> um, let's talk about the thought experiment itself, and then we'll discuss the structure of the book. There are several parts to the book. There are several thought experiments on one topic, for example, epistemology, then decision-making, metaphysics, ethics. But before we get into that, uh, you said at the beginning that, uh, that, that thought experiment is the bread and butter of philosophy. And uh, I guess many people are familiar with famous allegory of the cave plato's allegory of the cave which is which in a way could be thought of as uh, could be thought of as a thought experiment can you discuss this the the, the the idea of a thought experiment what is it how it's it's like i said it's relatable we do it all the time scenario making in our everyday lives can you explain that a bit yeah, so I think that it's very natural for us to make scenarios. In fact, uh, neuroscientists have found that this is exactly the case. So when you're sort of like uh, in an everyday situation, like for example, your table is set and there's this huge glass of this huge glass of wine and it stands all at the edge of the table. So you rush towards it and you put it and you think, oh no, it's going to fall. You see, like your toddler is running around and you just know it's going to fall. But how did you how did you react like this? Well, your brain automatically makes a scenario of toddler runs into table, glass of wine spills on the floor. Uh, and we do this so spontaneously, we do this all the time, making these scenarios. It's a small step from that to like doing it in a bit more of a deliberate way. And that's when we sort of make scenarios, like we, we make explicit to ourselves, like if I could get this job, I mean, I'm sure many of us have thought this, if I get called for this interview, then I might get this job. If I get this job, I have to relocate to Australia. If I have to relocate to Australia, then etc. Right? And you see how, how interesting that is, because, you know, I haven't even been shortlisted for this job in this hypothetical scenario, let alone that I'm going to move to Australia. Uh, but you can see how um, how we so spontaneously do it uh, in our daily lives, and it helps us to to act in certain ways. Like I, I've heard of people saying, like, I honestly don't see myself move to Australia. Therefore, uh, I don't know what to say, like, I know you are in Australia, right? Uh, and therefore, uh, I'm not going to apply to this job, right? So you see how this is useful for our everyday lives. Uh, but then we can do it in this deliberate way to really help us think through different scenarios. And I think that's where philosophical thought experiments come in. But I think they are actually continuous with literature. Like there's a lot of thought experiments going on in in various works of literature as well. Uh, you know, uh, 
I'm trying to think of specific examples like, uh, you know, chasing a big whale and, and things like that, uh, you know, so um, it's not so different. It's just that a thought experiment, a philosophical thought experiment is really short and it's really deliberately used to illustrate or to evoke uh, or to otherwise blend support to a philosophical position. That's what it, it's supposed to do. But it's very continuous with how we reason in general. Yeah, and the speaking of thought experiment, as, as, as a, like I said, the allegory of the cave, it's we tend to think of philosophy of something Western. But the great thing about this book is that you have covered a wide range of philosophers from different parts of the world. Uh, I was talking to uh, to Professor Hui Hui Loi from the University of Singapore. Uh, so, so for our listeners, we'll be you 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 hear that conversation soon, and uh, his thought experiment uh, was in partial care, which was by a philosopher, Chinese philosopher, from more than two thousand years ago, I guess. So it's just fascinating to see how thought experiments have always, for thousands of years, been used to 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 discuss everyday social issues. And uh, I the the book is actually there are forty two. Uh, articles and it's been divided into several sections and uh, can you talk about the structure of the book a little uh, the sections of metaphysics epistemology decision making ethics can you talk about the structure a little yeah so the structure that was really something that OUP recommended I do because it helps uh, so so it's it's helpful actually even also for the general reader like I'm interested suppose you're interested in uh, so these different these different parts are basically corresponding to different areas of philosophy. So in philosophy, there's various sort of subdisciplines of things that people are interested in. Like ethics has to do with the good life and with uh, you know moral norms. Epistemology has to do with what can we know? How do we form our beliefs? Can we trust what other people tell us? Uh, metaphysics has to do with the deep structure of reality, like are there souls, do we have free will, uh, is the world, what does the world ultimately consist of, is it infinite, uh, you know, things like that. Um, and so in order to give structure to these wide range of thought experiments, rather than grouping them by tradition, uh, I thought it was best to group them per sort of philosophical subdiscipline. So those are basically the, the different uh, the different parts. There's also philosophy of religion, which has to do with you know religious questions. Philosophy of language, which has to do with uh, you know how do we use language? How do we know that words mean a certain thing, uh, and so on. And uh, uh, one for one question I forgot to ask when you were describing this. Uh, talking about the significance of thought experiments, you make a distinction between epistemic action and pragmatic actions in your introduction. Uh, can you can you talk about that? What does it mean, epistemic action and pragmatic action? Yeah, so I published about this unrelatedly a few years ago, a different paper. It was a paper about mathematics. Um, and I think actually, so, so one of the things, this relates actually to the bigger question about why should we care about philosophy? I'm always worried about that, like not just because it's my job and if nobody cared about it, well, I wouldn't be able to do my job. But because I genuinely think uh, that philosophy helps us in ways that are unique uh, and that are important. 
Uh, and indeed, like a lot of the things that we think about are like, how can we change things? How can we do things? And those are pragmatic actions. Like think about climate change, huge topic now, like my family in Europe, like they, they are, you know, they're looking at the wildfires and the, and the gas prices and so on. So, so how can we solve that? And then you can say, like, let's do pragmatic actions, which are like actions in the world. Let's do carbon capture. Let's reduce our uh, carbon footprint. Uh, so things like that. So these are like concrete changes in the world. Epistemic actions actually don't change the world immediately. Like they just, they are basically things that we do to learn something and to change our beliefs. Uh, and that's what epistemic, so they are deliberate ways, deliberate things that we do to change how we think. And that's important because you can't just say do something like he said do something but you have to know what to do and in order to know what to do you have to consider and think and reflect and i think philosophy is so useful for that so a lot of thought experiments so there's a bunch of thought experiments in this book on political philosophy and those are our thought experiments like i'm just going to to give you one example, and it's the example of Rawls's grass counter. So Rawls has this delightful story of this brilliant mathematician who one day just decides to count blades of grass. That's all he does. He just sits at the side of the road and or at the, on the lawns of Harvard, this brilliant mathematician, and he counts blades of grass. Should, should people be allowed to do that? Uh, and, and Rawls sort of thinks about democracies as, you know, we, we all have to do our part, we have to be productive, and it seems like there's something like weird about that, like he is happy doing that, but he's not producing anything, he's not contributing anything. But then you can ask the question, and that's also what Bonnie Honig, who was the, the person who, who wrote the reflection, like it, it calls into question like, what do we value as a society? How should we think about members of a society? Should we think of them like normally we think of them as contributing to the greater good, but how about their personal happiness? I mean, this mathematician, what if he's truly happy, like the happiest thing on earth he can do is count blades of grass. And that's actually sort of thing, this sort of thought experiment helps you to think about such issues with clarity. By taking something really ridiculous, like counting blades of grass, we can get a clearer picture about should we enable him to do that like should we give him like a little minimum wage so he can count glass <laughs> grass all day and things like that yeah that was one of my favorite uh experiments as well uh uh, thank you very much, Dr. Helen Cruz, for your time and for sharing your thoughts. And I do encourage our listeners to stay on and listen to some of the authors talk about the thought experiments. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. For the next part of this podcast, we are in the presence of greatness. We have Professor Tamar, uh, Tamar Gendler with us. Professor Gendler is an American philosopher. She's the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Yale University. She's also a Professor of Philosophy, Psychology, and Cognitive Sciences at Yale. Professor Gendler, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's talk about your contribution to this book. Uh, you have written this thought experiment, which is called Skywalk, and it's in uh, it's it's an experiment in the philosophy of mind. So can you describe the experiment to us, please? Sure. So I want to ask you, as one does with thought experiments, to engage in an act of imagination. I want you to imagine that you go to visit the Grand Canyon in America, which is a canyon that's more than 
3,000 feet deep, thousands of meters deep. And you go to visit, there's a tourist exhibition there, which is a glass balcony that you can go and step on. And so you step out on this glass balcony, which is above the canyon, and you look down and beneath your feet, you see nothing. The glass is perfectly transparent and you see thousands and thousands and thousands of feet of empty space. And then far, far, far below your feet, the rushing of the Colorado River. I want you to imagine you're standing on this glass balcony, thousands of feet in the air. I want you to imagine the range of feelings that you have. So one of them, presumably, is that you feel anxious. You're going to feel a sense of vertigo while you're there. You're going to feel like you're shaking and uncomfortable and worried. But that isn't something that you believe. And I can prove that because if you believed that you were in danger, if you thought there was any real risk, you wouldn't voluntarily pay money to go out on this glass extension. And most particularly, imagine that you brought your children or your partner or someone you love tremendously with you out onto that platform. You wouldn't do something that put them explicitly in danger. So the thought experiment asks you to consider what could possibly be going on in your head since without question, you believe that you're safe. How should we describe the fact that even though you believe you're safe, you brought your child, you paid your money, you're standing there without any genuine worry that you're gonna fall. How do we explain the anxiety? And I have coined a term, which I call a leaf, and I'm happy to talk more about that in a few minutes, to describe that automatic response that you have of fear. So when you're standing out on a glass balcony, you believe that you're safe, you believe that you're in danger, and the thought experiment of the glass skywalk is meant to give you a concrete example where you notice about yourself that your head is full of a-leafy and B-leafy things at the same time. And that's where you coined the, the, that the term you just mentioned, Elif, to describe this automatic bodily reaction or experience, let's say. Uh, can, you, can you kind of elaborate on that, Elif, and give us another example? Because in the book, you, you give us some other examples that show how, how actually Elif is in play in our everyday lives without us even noticing how it's, it's impacting on our judgment, maybe. Good. Thank you so much. So I want to talk about Elif in two ways. The first is I want to explain just using some language why it's called Elif. And secondly, I'll give some additional examples. But while I describe the etymology of the term, that is why I chose A as the prefix, I want you to remember we're thinking about how do we describe the sensation you have of fear and anxiety though you truly believe and know that you're safe? And the answer is that a leaf is automatic. It is something that is affective. That is, it tends to involve emotional responses. It's associative. That is, it is connected with things associated set of links with. 
It's something that we share with non-human animals in the sense that it tends to be responsive to aspects of our evolutionary structure that aren't necessarily prefrontal cortex, that is, that are in the parts of our brain that are automatic, associative, and evolutionary instilled as the result of our animal. And there are other things that you could use to remind yourself mnemonically, it is irrational, that is, it's not rational, it's not irrational, it's irrational. So that's why it's called a leaf. It also comes before belief. So those are some ways of remembering that for the contingencies of language, it starts with an A. Now, let me give you some more examples of a leaf. We have them all the time. So let me give you one piece of beautiful, delicious, spectacularly yummy chocolate fudge. And while you're sitting there, I roll it up so that it comes to take the familiar form of something that comes out of the back of non-human animals. You will, even if you believe that it is fudge, feel a certain amount of disgust and repulsion because your A-leaf will tell you that what you are looking at is not something that is fit for human consumption. Anytime you have something that is a surrogate object that you recognize to be artificial, when you walk around at Halloween or carnival or whatever the festival holiday that you have in your culture, you will believe that everybody's dressed up in costumes, but you will nonetheless have instantaneous A-leafs as of encountering dragons or whatever else you see. And in fact, you might think of all of visual and auditory fictional representation through the lens of a leaf. Suppose you're watching a movie and something sad happens in the film, or you're watching a movie and there's a sound that makes you jump. I want you to think through, let's take the jump case, right? Somebody does, there's a threatening figure on a film screen looming and coming towards you. Do you believe that you're in danger? No, here's evidence. It looks exactly like it did in the Skywalk case. You don't believe you're in danger. And here's what I can tell you. You haven't moved. You're staying in the theater. You didn't take and protect your children or your loved one. You believe that you're safe. Nonetheless, you had an emotional response. You ducked or you cried. You could have this happen even with a movie where you know exactly what's going to happen next. So those are some other examples of a leaf. That is cases where you interpret an object on the basis of its surface features, even though that you know that its deep features differ from that. And that is what almost all aesthetic representation plays off of. So that's another domain in which we find a leaf at play. Uh, I really enjoyed the way you described it in terms of uh, bodily emotions and affect. I remember reading something from Brian Masumi who described affect as this automatic bodily reaction to, to external events. And uh, you, you had some really great examples there. And when you were bringing up those examples, I was reminded of how, for example, in our everyday life, we might judge a person based on their looks uh, because that's even 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 against our will to do that, we might 
you know, involuntarily uh, be a little bit predisposed to make a judgment or to form a judgment in our minds, and then maybe we quickly get over it. But uh, I guess the concept of Elif that you brought up is a good example to describe that. Uh, uh, am I right to assume that sometimes it reinforces the stereotypes or it kind of reinforces the inbuilt biases that we humans have? So it's interesting that we classify some overlearned associations as biases and some overlearned associations as knowledge. Because in fact, what the things that we call biases in code are, are patterns that we've encountered in the world. Human beings ultimately are pattern encoders and we tend to see something and then we see something adjacent to it and we come to have a certain association. Some of those associations are enormously helpful. In fact, most of those associations are enormously helpful. We come to associate things that cause pain in the body with danger. It's a really good thing that you associate not having anything under your feet with a situation that you don't want to place yourself in. It's a really good thing that you have an overlearned association of a looming object and the need to pull back. The problem is that we live in a world of injustices. And so what we encode automatically are the facts and patterns that we see. And to the extent that certain forms of embodiment are associated with certain forms of social location in a hierarchical system, we learn that the world is the way it is. And here's a funny thing about Elif's. You don't get to choose which ones you have. So if you live in a society that is hierarchically structured by race or hierarchically structured along certain kinds of gender expression or hierarchically organized along certain modes of religious self-presentation, you will, with exactly the same system that teaches you, keep my hand away from fire, it is hot, and exactly the same system that teaches you automatically to type on a keyboard or to drive on the side of the road that it's customary to drive in your country, your learning mechanism encodes the patterns that you encounter. And so if you live in a society that is structured around racial or gender or other sorts of hierarchical classifications, you will come to have a set of implicit associations of power and prominence with the dominant visual representation and of subjugation with those who don't fall in that category. I've just described to you what people call implicit bias. Implicit bias, which is an area of study in a lot of psychological literature, is the recognition that even if you affirmatively are trying to be egalitarian, if you have been raised in a society or a planet where most of us live, where racial categories make a difference in terms of what you have encountered, your associations will reflect that. Implicit bias is no different from pulling your hand away when something looks like a fire or reaching towards something that you come to associate with having it be appealing. It's how brains make sense of the world. But it brings out something really interesting about our beliefs. 
sometimes we like to have them out of line with our beliefs. It wouldn't be fun to go to an amusement park if you really were scared when you're on a roller coaster. What you want is the interplay between your belief that everything's fine and your A-leaf that's everything's risky. Or think about the joy of watching a sad film or of putting yourself into a situation of fear when you read a horror novel. The juxtaposition, my belief is like this, my A-leaf is like this, is the joy of it. That's why people pay to go out on the glass skywalk at the Chicago Tower, at the Grand Canyon. They have these all over. But sometimes we want our beliefs and our A-leafs to be in alignment with one another. And I'll give you two examples. One is the very serious one, which is if you hold a set of implicit biases because you live in an unjust society, you will find yourself just like a machine that engaged in machine learning. Everything that we call algorithmic bias is just because the only thing in some sense that computers have is a leafs. They just have these sorts of associative patterns. So just like a computer encoding information that picks up correlations in the world, your brain encoded information that picked up correlations in the world. But if you have an avowed desire to be anti-racist, or you have an avowed desire to be egalitarian, or you have an avowed desire to treat things in the world differently than they happen to be patterned in the world for whatever reason, it's going to take you extra effort at that moment to bring your A-leaps in line with your B-leaps. So a lot of the anti-biasing literature involves providing you with fundamental prototypes of a kind that allow you to bring those associations to the fore. So you're never going to lose the set of associations that you picked up as a result of navigating the world. You've lived in a society that's structured in a particular way. But if you provide yourself with images, for example, if you're interested in racial bias, and you provide yourself with images that come to your mind in a way that a leafs do, that allow you to see parity across embodiment, you will have less tension between your beliefs and your A-leafs. Okay, so I said that was the serious example. Here's a fun example. This is an audience of listeners, some of whom are in countries that were in the British Empire and some of whom are in countries that weren't. That is to say, some of whom drive on the left and some of whom drive on the right. Driving is another case where you want your beliefs and A-leafs to align. In fact, one of the ways in which you can see that you cross the street on the basis of a leaf is to go from a commonwealth country to a non-commonwealth country or vice versa, and to discover that you don't know which way to look when you're crossing the street. The cars are coming from the wrong direction. It's not like you don't believe you're in London or New York, but your A-leafs are causing you to look the other direction. Now, that's a playful case. That is a case where your A-leafs and B-leafs are out of line, and it's a problem because it's just a lagging habit. We have this all the time time, right? You rearrange your kitchen. Your A-leafs have the entire kitchen mapped out where things used to be. So even if you believe that you've moved the forks from the left side to the right side, you're going to have trouble finding them. But what these bring out, and I think it's really important as you think about implicit bias, which I think is often treated as grounds for moral condemnation, is that 
in the end, we're pattern picker uppers. If we live in an unjust society, we're going to pick up unjust patterns. Those are going to be what we see automatically. We have a moral obligation to try not to have those govern our behavior. But in the end, actually, a cost of living in an unjust society is that our instincts are going to pick up the patterns in the world around us. Uh, there, there were wonderful examples uh, describing alien and belief, especially <laughs> moving from a non-commonwealth country to a commonwealth country. That, that happened to me. I almost got killed twice, <laughs> not knowing which direction to look. <laughs> Thank you very much, <laughs> Professor Genda, for sharing your thoughts with us. It was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. It was great fun and they were wonderful questions. You're a spectacular interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Uh, for our next guest, we have Dr. Jennifer Lackey with us. Dr. Lackey is a Wayne and Elizabeth Jones Professor of Philosophy at Weinberg College of Arts and Science. She specializes in epistemology with a particular emphasis on a broad range of issues in social epistemology. She is the author of several books, including Learning from Words, Testimony as a Source of Knowledge, and she has co-edited The Epistemology of Testimony and The Epistemology of Disagreement, both published from Oxford University Press. And she is here today to talk to us about a thought experiment called a creationist teacher a thought experiment in epistemology jennifer welcome to new books network thank you for having me thank you uh to start with can you describe your thought experiment with us sure so um there was for many many years a long-standing theory in testimony in the epistemology of testimony that was nearly universally accepted. So the question is, how do we get knowledge from other people, um, from the words that people, you know, from from the from their their testimony, from this their speech or their statements? And there was a long-standing theory that really went nearly completely um, unchallenged for a very long time. And, and we can just call it like the transmission view. And the transmission view is that testimony is, um, you know, kind of people learn through testimony in much the way that we would imagine like a bucket brigade, right? So if we've got a bucket brigade of water, um, I have to pass, have a bucket of water to pass to you and you need a bucket of water to pass to the next person. And your bucket needs to be full in order to pass it to the next person. You can't give something that you don't have yourself. And that's really how testimony was thought to be um, a source of information or knowledge. In order for you to get knowledge from me, I have to have something to give you. It's really counterintuitive to think that I could give you something that I don't have. Well, belief is nearly universally accepted to be a necessary condition on knowledge. I don't know something if I don't believe it. I have to have that kind of relationship to a proposition in order to know it. And so creationist teacher was a counterexample to this view. 
It's a counterexample to the thesis that in order for you to come to know something on the basis of my testimony, I have to know it. And I gave the example of a teacher who is a creationist herself. So she doesn't believe evolutionary theory. But she's a teacher and she's a reliable source. So she goes to the library, she researches all the, you know, kind of um, information about evolutionary theory, and she testifies to her students, Homo sapiens evolved from Homo erectus. And my argument is that the students can come to know that Homo sapiens evolved from Homo erectus on the basis of her testimony, even though she doesn't know it herself because she doesn't believe it. And so I argue that the transmission thesis is false because you can give to other people what you don't have yourself. And so it laid the groundwork for my positive view in my book, which is called, my book is called Learning from Words. And the idea is that we don't learn from people's belief states. We don't, you don't have to believe something in order to be a communicator of it a reliable communicator of it we learn from people's words not from their belief states um and you also you also talk about another way of getting knowledge which is getting knowledge from perception and reason how do you how do you distinguish between perception and reason and and testimonial knowledge so one of the standard ways that perception and reason were distinguished from other sources like testimony and memory is that perception and reason were said to be generative sources, meaning that they can generate brand new knowledge, and testimony and memory were said to not be generative. Testimony transmits knowledge, memory preserves knowledge over time. They don't generate new knowledge. One of the things that's really interesting is if I'm right about creationist teacher, then testimony does generate new knowledge in people. Um, in you know, just as perception and memory generate new knowledge, testimony does too. Perception, you know, is typically thought to be generative because I can see things, I can hear things, and get brand new knowledge from that. Um, and reason, I can reason to a conclusion that's brand new knowledge. And if I'm right about creationist teacher, then um, Brand new knowledge can be generated in me through somebody's testimony. Now, as a last question, I'd like to read the last part of your article, which is sort of a conclusion to the thought experiments you have uh, posed, which is this quote, acquiring testimonial knowledge requires that the statements of speaker be reliably connected with the truth, not necessarily their mental states. The upshot of this is that we learn from one's words, not from one, uh, not from their personal beliefs. So can you expand on that point, please? Sure. So the traditional theory, according to which um, knowledge from testimony always comes from knowledgeable speakers, basically says that we learn from people's beliefs because knowledge has as a necessary condition belief. And so when I learn something from you, you have to believe it in order for me to learn from you. But what I want to argue through the creationist teacher example is that actually we can come to learn from people's words. And so what really matters is what people are saying as far as learning from them through their testimony rather than what they're believing. Uh, your thought experiment sort of reminded me when I was a student. So I was in the English department and there was this department of religious studies right next to us. And the head of the religious, uh, the department of religious studies was an atheist himself. He was a self-proclaimed atheist, but he was he was writing about religion. And when I told to my friends about it, they were all surprised. So how come he's teaching religious studies? <laughs> yeah, so it's, no, know. this is true. I mean, I actually have an example in my book of like an actual evolutionary theorist who's a paleontologist. Hmm. 
And so, you know, obviously if he, he was a PhD student, so obviously if people are learning paleontology from him, he's teaching what he doesn't believe himself. That's a fascinating example. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Lanky, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts with us. Of course. Take care. Thanks for reaching out. Okay. Bye-bye. For our next guest uh, on this book, we have Professor David Christensen with us. Uh, Dr. David Christensen is a professor of philosophy at Brown University, and he's here to talk to us about his thought experiment called Splitting the Bill at a Restaurant, which is a thought experiment in epistemology. Uh, David, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you. So to start with, could you just describe the thought experiment that you have devised, and then we'll get into some more specifics about this thought experiment. Sure, yeah. So it the experiment is supposed to shed some light on a question about how we should see other people's beliefs. So most of us have beliefs about controversial issues, of course, um, and some of these issues are issues, they're not like, a, like I like chocolate ice cream, you like vanilla ice cream, but they're about matters of fact. So when we have a disagreement, one of us is right and the other one is wrong. Uh, and sometimes in these disagreements, if you think about the other person who disagrees with you, you'll have to admit to yourself that they're just as smart as you are. They know just as much about the evidence as you do. They're just as honest. So they're, they seem to be as likely as you are to get the right answer on this kind of issue. And so the question that this poses in epistemology, uh, which is you know the study of what beliefs are rational and what beliefs are not rational, is something like this. Can it be rational for me to maintain my confidence in my belief, knowing that people disagree with me, and in, in, in particular, knowing that people who seem to be just as smart and knowledgeable and honest and hardworking as I am, disagree with me. And so the experiment was designed to get a very simple case where we have a very good idea what the evidence is. We have a very good idea about how to gauge how good people are at responding to the evidence. So I imagine a case where I've been going out to uh, dinner with my friend for many years and we do, uh, we divide the check and do the math in our heads. And we've discovered that we're equally good at doing this kind of math over many, many, many dinners. And we're both pretty good, but when we disagree, we've been wrong equally often. And so of course today we do the math in our heads and my friend disagrees with me. Um, maybe I get $43 and she gets $45. And so the question is, uh, should I lose confidence in my belief, at least until we get out the calculator and figure out who's really right? In the meantime, should I lose confidence? And uh, the side of the, the experiment is supposed to support the idea that in these kind of cases, I should lose confidence. I should not be confident that she's the one who made the mistake this time. And uh, when, when, when you say that our friend is just as smart as we are, we have the same level of, let's say, understanding, knowledge, or education, that's what you call epistemic peer in your, uh, in your reflection in the thought experiment. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, if, if I was going out to dinner with a five-year-old and they disagreed with me about the bill, I wouldn't have any reason to worry. Right. But the idea of an epistemic peer is somebody who's just as good as I am in general about figuring out this the relevant kind of material. 
It's a very useful thought experiment because sometimes I get into some discussions or let's say arguments with some friends of mine over different topics. And sometimes the discussions, it really gets heated, the arguments. Yeah. Uh, now, let's see, for in this experiment, you have, you, you make a distinction between two philosophical standpoints, or let's say two types of stances. One of them is a conciliationist, and the other one is a steadfast right. um, stance. Can you describe what these two are and how they relate to the, ex to the experiment? Sure, yeah. So the stance that I've been defending is the one that I've called conciliationism, which is the stance that I should lose confidence in this case, and more broadly, in many cases where I disagree with people who are my epistemic peers. And the steadfast view, and there's different variations of it, but I think the best variation of the steadfast view is the one that says, well, if I'm the one who actually got the basic reasoning right on this particular occasion, then even if in general, my friend is equally good at figuring this kind of stuff out, um, if I'm the one who got it right this time, it's rational for me to hold firm, to be steadfast in my opinion, and not to lose confidence. And uh, there are also pretty good arguments, or that's the evidence in support of both both stances. Uh, the question that I have here is that, so how can we rationally retain our confidence despite some disagreement or some apparent evidence against our stance? And you make a reference to an article here, uh, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, uh, Lassanen Arino, am I right? Arnie, yeah. yeah, yeah. So can you shed some light on that? Yeah, so Maria Lassen Arneo is a philosopher who's defended the idea that um, as far as rationality goes, um, things like disagreement of other people or even, let's say, evidence that I've been drugged or something uh, should not cause me to lose confidence if, in fact, I've done the original reasoning correctly. And... Uh, I mean, her argument is very complicated and sophisticated. I can't really go through it now. But roughly what she does is she tries to show that any way of trying to, to describe a principle of rationality that yields the conciliationist result is going to be very difficult and problematic in various ways. And I think she's right. It does turn out to be pretty hard to sort of write out the rules of rationality in a way that Mm. is consistent with conciliationism. I mean, this is what I try to do, but uh, it's a difficult thing to do. Mm. And, and being a steadfast, mm. and I mean, uh, sticking to a stead, steadfast stance, uh, mm. is there a possibility of this leading to dogmatism, just stubbornly defending your stance? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly the conciliationist uh, thought, that, you know, <clears throat> we all are imperfect beings, mm. And one of, the, one of the key things about making mental mistakes is that they're not transparent to the person who makes them. So, you know, if I hold fast in my disagreements, I seem to be saying, well, I'm not the one who made the mistake this time. Mm -hmm. And if you're, let's say if you're a philosopher, you probably have controversial opinions on lots of matters. So if you were a steadfast philosopher and you, you know, held firm on all those opinions, you'd, you'd have to think, wow, I got all these things right and all these other philosophers are getting them wrong. 
Now, maybe, you know, if I look at the external evidence, it looks like they're just as smart as I am. Looks like they're just as well-educated. Looks like they're just as, you know, steeped in the literature, but hey, I got all this stuff right. Hmm, maybe I'm pretty special. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it's a task of philosophy to touch up on controversial issues as well, <laughs> to go against yes. the current sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of the things that's hard in controversial issues is um, relates to the question you asked first, which is about epistemic peerhood. Uh, so who should I consider my peers? In the restaurant case, it's really simple. I designed it to be simple. Yeah. But if we think about um, controversies in politics, it's a lot more complicated. Do I really believe that the people who, let's say, uh, well, without getting into details, if people on the other side, do I really believe that they're honest and, and in good faith and... Uh, Sometimes I don't actually. Mm -hmm. So then should I be thinking of them as peers or not? That gets very complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because you're right. When it comes to science or math, it's more or less easier to make a decision. But when it comes to social ethical issues, then uh, then the question is way, way more difficult and complicated. Yes, right. There's no track record for one thing. There's no neutral referee to say, oh, you know, they've been right just as often as you have. Mm -hmm. Dr. David Christenden, thank you very much uh, for sharing your thoughts with us on this thought experiment. Well, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. For our next guest, we are in the presence of greatness. We have uh, Peter Singer with us. Dr. Peter Singer is a professor of bioethics with a background in philosophy. Uh, he works mostly in practical ethics and is best known for his book called Animal Liberation and also his writings about global poverty. And he's here to talk to us about uh, one of the thought experiments in this book called A Drowning Child, which is a thought experiment in ethics. Dr. Peter Singer, thank you very much for accepting our invitation. You're very welcome. So to start with, maybe you can start just describing the thought experiment you came up with, and then we'll delve down into some specifics uh, of that thought experiment. Sure. So I ask uh, the reader, or in this case, uh, the viewer or listener, to imagine that you're walking across a park in which there's a shallow pond. And you know that the pond is shallow. Maybe in summer you see teenagers standing up in it, uh, but now it's, it's winter and there's nobody in it at all, except as you walk past, you notice that there is actually something in it splashing around. And when you look more closely, you see it's a small child. Um, so your, your first thought is, uh, I'd better save this child. You know, there doesn't seem to be any parents or babysitters looking after the child. Uh, I better just run into the pond and, and save the child. But then you realize that you're wearing some really nice and expensive clothes uh, that you put on today because you're going somewhere special and you don't have time to get them off if you want to save the child. So uh, you have to jump in fully clothed and you're going to ruin these clothes. So you will be up for some, some expense if you save the child. And you wonder, well, would I just walk on and forget that I ever saw the child? Uh, would that be okay? Um, after all, the child is not my responsibility, um, not my child. Nobody even asked me to look after the child, nothing to do with me. So why shouldn't I just walk on? Uh, and I take it that most of you will be saying, no, you can't walk on. You can't let a child drown because you don't want to be up for the expense of some new clothes. So uh, you would be doing something awful if you didn't jump in and save the child. 
So that's the thought experiment. But um, then, of course, I go on to relate this to global poverty and the situation that we, citizens of affluent countries who are, let's say, middle class or above, are in with regard to the opportunities we have to save the lives of children in low-income countries. And the origin of this thought experiment was an article that you wrote in 1972, uh, Famine, Affluence and Morality. Am I right? That is correct, yes. I've repeated it in other places, including the book, The Life You Can Save, mm. um, which gives a fuller discussion of yeah. the issue. But how, how is this similar, this situation that you, exp that, that you describe in the thought experiment, how is it similar to this situation, to the global poverty and uh, and also our responsibility as individuals towards people we've never seen. The point of the thought experiment is to challenge the idea that um, the fact that people who are in extreme poverty and dying from their poverty, uh, as many people do, and particularly children, um, that the fact that they are... The, the, the fact that we did not cause them to be in that situation is not a justification for our not helping. Uh, and that's why the, the point of the child in the pond is that the fact that we did not cause the child to be in the pond, nor did we undertake any responsibility for looking after the child, that doesn't mean that it's okay to walk past and let the child drown. So the fact that we're not responsible for, let's say, children dying from malaria in malaria-prone regions uh, doesn't mean that we don't have any obligations to assist if we can. Um, and in that particular example, as in many others, we can assist by donating to an effective charity that will provide bed nets to people in those malaria-prone regions. And it's been clearly demonstrated in controlled studies that when people do get bed nets, they use them and the number of children dying from malaria uh, drops significantly compared to uh, other villages in which there are no bed nets. Uh, and my, my next question has two parts. Uh, it's that, well, some might argue that it is true, right? We, we need to help strangers as well, but it's, it's, it's like a drop in an ocean and it's not really gonna solve the problem of global poverty. That's one part of it. And the other part is that, especially these days, a lot of governments try to shift their own responsibility onto individuals, whether it comes to global warming, whether it comes to poverty. Um, and there is, a, there, there is a dose of, let's say, suspicion towards, to, towards, or let's say distrust towards governments as well. So do you think what is your response to those who might argue that it's a shift? It's, it's shifting government government's responsibilities to to address the structural injustice uh, around the globe to individuals. Uh, well, before I talk about uh, governments, let me answer the first part of your question, mm. which is basically the the drops in the ocean objection, mm. saying, "Well, you're not going to solve global poverty this way." Um, and, you know, maybe you're not, but um, you're not going to solve parents neglecting their children by pulling this one child out of the pond either. Mm. But it's still a good thing to do because you've saved one child's life. Mm. So um, the fact that you're not going to solve global poverty by distributing bed nets doesn't mean that it's not a good thing to do. It does save children's lives. Um, 
And mm. I think that that's a good thing to do. I think anybody who thinks about that will accept that it is a good thing to do. Um, so if you have the opportunity to do it and, and to do it at a relatively modest cost, you know, the cost maybe a little more than the clothes that you normally wear, but um, you can certainly contribute to saving a child's life for um, mm -hmm. a few hundred dollars, you know, perhaps together with others. And the total cost is, is still really very modest compared mm -hmm. to what we spend to save lives in affluent countries. So that's why I think you should do it, even if it's not going to solve global poverty. Now, um, some people might then try to shift this to governments and say, well, governments should be doing this. Um, and I don't necessarily disagree with that. I would certainly support the idea that governments should be giving a lot more aid than they do. Uh, but um, I live in a country, Australia, where governments give extremely little foreign aid. Uh, the Australian government is currently giving about 22 cents in every $100 that the nation earns, I believe. Um, and uh, I spend part of each year in the United States teaching at Princeton, uh, and the US government is down at a pretty similar level, really. It's not very different. Mm -hmm. So if you're living in one of the handful of countries that are giving around 1%, one, $1 or one euro, let's say, in every 100 that the country earns, and if you're paying taxes towards that, you might have a somewhat better reason for not giving voluntarily, although personally, I think you still should. I think that's still mm. too low a level. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if your government's not doing enough, then why not make up for it? You still have that choice to contribute more. Uh, and I think we should do that while encouraging governments mm. to do more and incidentally also to make their aid more effective because mm. we as individuals have the choice to find out the most effective organizations, uh, which, for example, you can go, do by going online to thelifeyoucansave.org, mm -hmm. a charity that I founded to uh, try to set up the most effective, uh, to try to inform people about the most effective charities for helping people in extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, perhaps you can actually get better value by doing that than most governments would, would give you because governments are, tend to be more conservative and hard to shift in uh, in their policies. Mm. Yeah, thank you. And, and um, you yourself were uh, sort of encouraged to, 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 to give up a part of your salary. Uh, as you mentioned in this article, uh, Famine, Affluence and Morality, and it has become a seminal article. It has been read in a lot of classes when it comes to as an introduction to the philosophy of ethics. And you mentioned that a lot of people have also been influenced, some of your students maybe, I'm not mistaken, I read it somewhere. Too. They have established charities, and one of them you just mentioned, the life you can save, right? Can you explain about that a little bit more, please? Yes, yeah, certainly. Actually, I uh, co-founded that together with mm. uh, a man called Charlie Bressler, who um, was not an academic, but he, he had a career in, uh, in the retail industry and had made quite a lot of money, but had had the feeling that somehow this wasn't really what he'd wanted to do with his life when he was... Mm setting out in life when he was a student, for example. Um, and so he came to me uh, after he'd read the book, The Life You Can Save, and said, basically, let's set up a charity that provides the, this information to people and mm -hmm. spreads the ideas that I was putting forward in that original article mm -hmm. um, so that more people know that you can give effectively and uh, that this is a good and actually a personally rewarding thing to do. So um, 
that uh, charity uh, has a website. And if you want to read the book, The Life You Can Save, uh, the charity bought back the rights from the original publisher and is now making it available uh, free as a, either an ebook or an audio book uh, just by going to that website. So, uh, yeah, we're trying to spread that information about the most effective charities you can donate to. Professor Peter Senior, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Well, our next guest is uh, Professor Alexandra King. She's a professor of philosophy at Simon Fraser University, and she's here with us to talk about um, a thought experiment, Red Square, which is a thought experiment in aesthetic. But I must mention that the thought experiment was written by Arthur Danto, and Professor Alexandra King has uh, some reflections on that. Alexandra, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about this. Thank you. Um, let us start by describing this uh, thought experiment first, and then we'll get into some specifics about it. Sure, yeah. So uh, Arthur Danto's thought experiment, this is in his book, The Transfiguration of the Commonplace. He sort of wants you to imagine you walk into a museum and you see this hallway, and the hallway is full of paintings that actually look quite similar to each other. So you see the first one and it's called uh, Israelites Crossing the Red Sea. And it's just a square red canvas. It's got a frame around it, just looks plain red canvas. You move on to the next one. This one is by a Russian painter and it's called Red Square. It's kind of a funny little pun, you know, a little wink there. Also a red square looks identical visually to Israelites crossing the Red Sea. You go on a little further, there's another one. It's called Kierkegaard's Mood. You can see Arthur Danto like flexing a little bit of philosophy cheekiness here. Uh, there's another one. He says, imagine this one is an unfinished painting by the Italian artist Giorgione. And he says, imagine that it was, he, he intended it to be a finished painting, um, but never got around to finishing it. But what it looks like right now is also a red square. Uh, it's just that he primed the canvas with the red paint and was prepared to, you know, um, paint a whole image over top of that using the sort of red primer. Um, but never got around to it or never finished it. This one's called Conversazione Sacra. Uh, and then you go down a little ways further, another one called Nirvana, another one called Red Tablecloth. Danto stops there, but you can imagine, you know, you just keep walking down the hallway. All of these look visually identical to each other. Um, I mean, historically, this isn't, this is my own editorializing. Historically, this probably isn't quite realistic, right? Like a, a Italian... Renaissance painter probably isn't going to be using the same exact paints, for example, to prime a canvas, maybe isn't going to be using like the same kind of canvas material, it's not going to be woven the same way, it's not going to be um, like stretched the same way, there's going to be differences like that. But, you know, you can imagine looking, it's just visually identical. So Danto is like, what makes these different works of art? And what makes any of these works of art versus you know, we, in a way we want to say Conversazione Sacra isn't a finished work of art, but how do we get to say that? Because they look visually identical to each other. So that's the kind of thought experiment puzzle that sets up the whole thing. That's a fascinating thought experiment, I guess, especially more recently, the past 
10 years, there have been a lot of uh, pieces of art that that got people started to talk about the nature of art. I guess the, one of them that I remember, which was before COVID, was a banana that was taped to a wall, if I remember correctly. So yeah, does, yeah, yeah. Does Dante, the Danto himself, uh, provide an answer to the question? Yeah, he does. So Danto, his view is that uh, what makes something into a work of art, it's somewhat complex, but in essence he defends a theory that involves some kind of it like the artwork has to embed a kind of message or like encode a kind of message or like a meaning and that's something that like the institution of art enables us to have and share with each other so it's kind of it's like there's a little bit of institutional what we might call institutionalism in there where the institution helps like the art historical institution helps us to you know encode those kinds of meanings in a certain way so that other people when they look at them they're kind of trying to unearth those meanings um and it's a little bit intentionalist in that you know something about the artist um intention and kind of intention to communicate something is important uh, and express something is important. There's like a bunch of different little bits in there that are really important for him. What's most important for Danto is that it's not just about the visual aesthetic properties. Like those by themselves can't help us, right? I could go to, you know, an art shop and just buy a red canvas and that's not yet art. Um. So I guess that poses a question of art versus and uh, use this uh, phrase, a mere real things in your reflection. And you talk about a fascinating art installation. Uh, Tracy M is my uh, my bet. Can you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, definitely. So this the terminology artworks versus mere real things is Danto's terminology. Mm -hmm. He's like, look, some some objects, they're like mere real things. I mean, you know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't myself use the word mirror. I think that real things are pretty great sometimes. Um, but what he means by that is like, you know, if I walk outside and there's like some trees and some flowers and some grass and some cars and some whatever, those are all mere real things. They're just things that we kind of are given by the world. Um, whereas art has this kind of special status. So like, if I see a banana in the grocery store, that's a mere real thing. If I see a banana duct taped to a wall in a gallery and, you know, photographers taking pictures of it and, you know, journalists interviewing people about it, that's more than a mere real thing. That's, that's a banana that has a different kind of status from the banana in the grocery store. Um, and so Dando's kind of puzzle is like, how do we differentiate the mere real things from the art objects? Um, and an example I like of this is, as you said, this uh, artwork by Tracy Emin called My Bed. So, you know, you can walk to your bedroom right now and you got your bed there. It's got, maybe it's like messy. Maybe you haven't made it. Maybe you make your bed every morning, whatever. You kind of know what to do with your bed. If you want to take a nap, you go to your bed and you take a nap. If you walk to someone else's house, you can't really get in their bed and take a nap in their bed, but you, it's like, again, you know how to kind of interact with that thing. Now compare this, Tracy Emin, um, 
basically she went through a period of depression and she stayed in her bed for a long time and she like ate meals there she read there she um like had sex in the bed she did all kinds of different things and the installation is that bed like that actual bed unmade uncleaned with all of the debris that kind of surrounded the bed so there's like empty ketchup packets there's used um kleenex all kinds of stuff is just like scattered around the bed used condoms all kinds of like bodily debris it's like quite gross and visceral um but what you're supposed to see is like that is her sort of near real thing bed made into an artwork because it's put in as an installation in a gallery to be appraised and sort of read into in a certain way, in a way that like, if you just saw that bed in her house, you wouldn't be sort of like reading into it for meaning. You wouldn't try be trying to like unearth, like what's she trying to say? Or like, what is going on here? What's like the message or what's, what am I feeling as a response to this? You would just be like, oh, bed, unmade, dirty, gross. I'm going to leave the bedroom now, you know? Uh, so I like this kind of example because it really, you can sort of feel in yourself or like imagine feeling if you haven't seen the installation. Um, you can imagine feeling really differently in these two different situations. Like you walk into her house and you suddenly you're like, oh my God, Tracy, are you okay? Do you need me to hire a cleaner for you or something? Um, whereas in the gallery, it's a very different kind of experience. And I guess it highlights the point just you mentioned earlier that it's not only the visual features that affords the status of art to something, it's the author's intention. I know with authorial intention, it's kind of problematic, but anyway, it's author's intention. That sort of reminds me, when I was a student, at the entrance of the library of my university, there was always an art installation done by students, very amateur art installation every week. And some of them were just over the top. I didn't like them, but one of them kind of stuck in my mind, which was an empty food basket put on a stand with a sign saying, workers share. And I don't know if it was filled with fruits at one stage or not, but it was just an empty basket put there. And I remember at that time, it was it was in New Zealand. There were there were a lot of you know uh, there were a lot of uh, media coverage about increasing workers' wage. So it was a very it was just an empty basket, but it had an important message there. <laughs> Um, and as a last question, to what extent do you think the art institutions are can have that authority or can afford the status of art to to let's say mere real things? <laughs> yeah, I, I love that example. I love that example. Um, I mean, my own view on this is uh, like I'm actually inclined to be pretty permissive about what counts as art. Um, so I think Danto's really focused, uh, on what we might call like fine art, like painting. He's also really famously very into Warhol's Brillo boxes, which you might characterize as like a kind of sculpture, right? But he's into this kind of like fine gallery art, but then, it, and you can kind of get in the mindset like, oh, that's a kind of nice answer that he gives for those cases. But there's also cases of like, design objects right like fashion objects uh like people who 
art, like architecture, for example, right? There, there are kind of art elements to it, but there are also mere real things elements to it. There's like use, but there's also kind of aesthetic and you can approach those things in this kind of unearthing the meaning way that you might approach a, a fine art, a piece of fine artwork, like these red squares or Tracy Emmons bed or that kind of thing. Um, so I think the institute, like institutional ideas, institute, this kind of institutional theory of art really helps us see and clarify a lot of weird cases like my bed, like the banana, or, you know, you can think of um, the, the basket that you were talking about, or Marcel Duchamp and his famous ready-mades. Um, you can think of something like John Cage even in 433, right? This, it's just four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. And that's the, that's the piece of music, right? There's a kind of mere real thing there, which is like found sound versus like the piece of music. So there's all kinds of interesting ways that institutional views can help us understand this distinction, but I think it doesn't work as well, or it starts to break down when we think about um, like architecture and fashion and things like that, where there's like a kind of gray area in there, right? And it's like, the, you know, the institute, there are a bunch of worries about institutional theories, like how does something get to be an institution and all of that stuff. Um, but even in, I think the best version of that, there are still going to be a bunch of kind of fuzzy, questionable boundaries. Um, I myself am not super gripped by the what is art question. I am very inclined to just, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. If you want to call it art, great, super. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I studied literature myself and there's this question in literature as well, what counts as a canonical novel good novel and sometimes you know uh, an author writes a novel first novel and it's a contemporary author it wins a couple of important awards which is decided by a few literary judges and then it becomes a work of art but some other people read in the same well it is the role of the institutions where versus how people receive it but yeah this 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 sort of dialogue <laughs> is i guess in a lot of fields yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And it's interesting how institutions play a role in like making something count as art versus making something count as good art yeah. and how much legitimacy we want to give to mm. institutions in one versus the other of those questions. Mm. Professor Alexander King, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. For our next guest, uh, we are honored to have Professor Laurie Ann Paul with us. Uh, Professor Paul is a professor of philosophy and cognitive science at Yale University, and she's here to talk to us about her thought experiments becoming a vampire, a thought experiment in decision theory. Uh, Laurie, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Uh, So to begin with, can you tell us what the thought experiment is about and uh, what the origin of the thought experiment was, which was from uh, your book, which was published in 2015, and then we'll get into some more details about the thought experiment. Okay, so the thought experiment is uh, is basically designed to give us a sense, uh, using a simple example, of something that turns out to be rather complex and difficult. So what I ask you to do is to imagine that you have a one-time only chance to become a vampire. 
imagine that you're touring a castle somewhere in Eastern Europe and Dracula comes to you and tells you that he wants to make you one of his own. Um, he tells you this is a one-time chance that you need to rush back to your Airbnb and reflect on what you'd like to do, that if you'd like to become a vampire, leave your window open at midnight. Um, if you decide you don't want to become a vampire, keep your window closed, leave at dawn and never come back. Now, before you rush off to your Airbnb, he tells you, look, you know, I think you should take this opportunity because becoming a vampire will give you amazing new sensory powers, um, incredible physical capacities. You'll look amazing in black. You'll have excellent taste. Um, you'll be witty. Everyone will think that you have some kind of magnetic amazingness. Um, so obviously this is something you should want to do, right? So, you know, Dracula tells you all of these positive things. You go back to your room, you think about the possibilities, you text your friends, you call your mom. After you text your friends and call your mom and talk with them about, uh, tell them what, about this opportunity, they tell you that they have already decided to become vampires. And this surprises you. Um, and so you start to ask them about it and what they say as well. They confirm everything that Dracula's already told you. But of course, they also confirm that you have to drink blood. Um, they say this could be artificial blood so that you can kind of try to avoid various kinds of ethical dilemmas, but it's blood nonetheless. You'll find it amazing and um, kind of, you know, it'll have nuances and flavor that maybe you couldn't have appreciated when you were human. Um, and yes, you'll have to avoid sunlight and sleep in a coffin. And in many ways, you will become a kind of monster. But then, after you press them a little bit more and you ask them, you know, is this something that, you know, that they think you should do? They say, well, we do think you should do it. We think, you know, becoming a vampire is a fabulous opportunity. We're really happy with our choice, but you can't possibly understand what it's like as a mere human. You're going to have to take our word for it. Life has meaning and a sense of purpose now that it never had when we were human, but it's just not something that you can understand. So that's the situation that you're in. You have until midnight. And the problem is that if you want to make this life-changing, um, you know, impossible to manage choice, you don't know what you really need to know. In other words, you can't know what it's like to become a vampire, to be a vampire until you actually become one. But the choice is irreversible. So you have to make your choice without knowing something a deeply salient and really important factor um, about the choice, which is what are you making yourself into? What is it going to be like? What is the rest of your life going to be like? Right until maybe you get a stake through the heart. It's going to be a long, long life to become a vampire. So that's the thought experiment. Great, thank you. And 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 the thought experiment before, before talking about the thought, thought experiment itself, that came from one of the books that you published in 2015 by Oxford University Press, Transformative Experience. So, for the purpose of that, can you define what is an epistemologically transformative experience? Yes. So the way that I so the way that I describe all of this is I say, look, the chance to become a vampire is a transformative experience. You're going to mm -hmm. transform into something, basically, into an entirely new kind of being. Um, and I say that even though obviously this is um, an imaginative thought experiment, and we don't ordinarily get the chance to become vampires, that um, it captures something that we do actually experience all the time um, in our lives, and that is um, it captures captures the transformative experience of undergoing a life changing event. Um, and the kinds of examples I give are becoming a parent, or maybe going to college, or leaving home for the first time, or joining the military, that kind of thing. 
Um, and the way that I explore what a transformative experience is, is they say, look, it's got two components. Um, it involves an epistemic transformation and it involves a personal transformation. Um, so an epistemically transformative experience is an experience that changes what you know, but the catch is that um, it can only change what you know through having an experience. Um, and you have to have that experience to know basically um, this new opportunity, in other words, to know what it's like, for example, to become a vampire, or sometimes I talk about, say, if someone were colorblind, they'd have to um, have a retina operation or wear in chroma glasses in order to know what it's like to see red. Um, and someone can tell you all about what it's like to see red, someone can tell you all about, all about what it's like to become a vampire or to be a parent for that matter, but until you actually experience that, there's something essential about the nature and character of that experience that you can't know. And when you do experience it, you will undergo an epistemic transformation. That is, you'll have an experience um, and learn something that you couldn't have learned any other way. Now, the thing is, epistemic transformations can be small or they can be big. Um, and what's interesting, I think, are epistemic transformations that are big. And these big epistemic transformations also lead to what I call a personal transformation. And a personal transformation is something that changes you in a very deep and fundamental way. And as I describe it in my book, it just, you know, it changes some of your core kind of personal or fundamental preferences, what you care about most. If you think about it, if you undergo a radical epistemic change and all of a sudden, you know, you discover something dramatically new, then it's likely to kind of reorganize what you care about in important ways. If you discover seeing color for the first time or what it's like to be a parent or you see death in front of you or fear for your own life for the first time, that's gonna reorganize some of the things that you care about most. And that then will create a personal transformation. And what I take a real transformative experience to be is just the combination of the epistemic and the personal change. Mm -hmm. And that's where you make the distinction between the self that makes the decision and the self that bears the results of that decision. So in the past 10 years of my life, I've kind of migrated to three different countries. And sometimes my friends back in my home country ask me if they should, you know, go to another country or not. And I tell them, look, I can't really tell you because I'm telling you from my current perspective. But if you ask me 10 years ago, the answer might have been completely different. And, and I could be wrong, but I, I, I watched a few documentaries earlier. And when I read your thought experiment, I was reminded of those documentaries about people who have a gender reassignment surgery and what they go through after that and how they interviewed them before and after and the way they would talk about their experience was was quite fascinating to me and when i read your experiment so to to compare it to to another example maybe uh that's what i thought about so i could be wrong i don't know but i i, I tend to think of it also as an epistemologically transformative experience yes i think i think there are a lot of different kinds of examples and transitioning to a new gender would be one of them um the interesting things um, about some of these and some of these experience, some of these changes and some of these um, these experiences um, before one undergoes the experience, there's a kind of level of being unsure. Is this something I really want? One of the interesting things about gender transitioning is that people tend to be very sure of what they want, and they tend to um, also be very satisfied with the result. So that's somewhat of a special case, but it's definitely, I think, a transformative experience. Some of the cases that I've been really interested in are cases where people are kind of unsure. Um, and one of the funny things about a transformative experience is, as you say, is that, you know, who you are changes in a really substantial way. And the interesting thing is, once you've changed, then it becomes very hard to sort of get yourself back into the mindset or back into the shoes of that former self. And so to make a kind of meaningful comparison between your life before the change and, and your life after is extremely difficult. 
I think it can be, it's quite common for people to be like, I'm really happy with who I am now. And that's perfectly rational. But before they changed, like, again, parenting is a good example for me, because I think people can sometimes be unsure then, then the self that they were then, in a sense, can't get into the head of the self that they'll become. And so you can't make the choice to become that new self if it's going to be epistemically transformative, because there's a way in which you can't get into the head of that future self. So you have to kind of take a leap. And there's a sort of leap of faith involved in all of this that I think is like really important. And then again, just going back to gender transitioning happens there as well. But I think there people feel that, that this is something that they have to do. And it's less, they're not, it's less of a choice in the sense of being unsure about should they transition or not. I think people just think I have to do this, but then they cross that divide. And I think they probably lose contact with the self that they were before the transition. Uh, and I, it's, it's kind of a cheeky question, I guess. How can we make a rational decision when faced with, with, an, with, a, with an epistemologically transformative experience? Uh, based on what you said, we, we do have some certain set of evidence, but we don't really know the outcome. So I guess the question of making a rational decision might not be the right question. <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. No, I think that's right. I think, I mean, I think if you believe that all the possible outcomes are going to be good, then there's a sense in which you can be rational to do it, but you're not doing it then based on primarily what you think it's going to be like. You're doing it based on the fact that whatever it's going to be like, it's good, things are going to be better. And the same goes if you're faced with something where all the options are bad, then you know you don't want to do it, but you don't do it because you don't, because you know what it's going to be like. It's rather you just know whatever it's going to be like, it's going to be bad. The interesting cases, the especially difficult cases for rational decision-making involve cases where some of the outcomes are good and some of the outcomes are bad, right? So you would be, these interesting cases of transformative experience, some of them um, where it's not so much about the rationality of the decision, but then other cases where some of the outcomes could be good and some could be bad, where some, where at least ordinarily we want to say, well, we want to do whatever's rational. Um, and the, what I try to talk about in my book is to say, look, if you can't know what it's going to be like, you know, to occupy those future shoes of your future self, then don't fool yourself understand the basis on which you're making the decision. It can be rational if you say, well, look, I'm just going to take the chance and discover who I'm going to become. But it's not rational if you think, oh, I have some special sight into my future self across this divide. I know what it's going to be like. And so I know I can make the decision based in, in an informed way. And I think that's a way in which we often fool ourselves. Professor Laurie Paul, thank you very much for talking uh, to us and taking and, and making time for us. Thank you. Well, our next guest, we have Professor Hui Chia Loy with us. Uh, professor Loy is a professor of philosophy in the National University of Singapore, and he's here to talk to us about his thought experiment called The Impartial Caretaker, which is a philosophical thought experiment in the philosophy of ethics. Uh, Loy, thank you very much for uh, accepting our invitation. Uh, uh, welcome. Happy to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Let us start. Uh, this is not your thought experiment. I've provided a re reflection on this thought experiment. So uh, I did ask you before the interview, but I'm sure I'm going to get the name wrong. But could you please describe this? This thought experiment is by Moitz. So could you please explain uh, what was he famous for and who was he? Uh, so Moitz was a social political thinker and some kind of activist who lived in the Warring States period of ancient China. That's a very long time ago, by the way. Um, he was most famous for propounding the idea that 
morality requires that we practice impartial caring, right? And the basic idea is that we are to regard others as we do ourselves and strangers as we do um, you know, our associates, our kin, our fellow countrymen. And the reason he thought that this was the right way to go is because of the good consequences that are supposed to follow if people really did behave according to impartial caring. He thought that the world would be much better off that way. Right. And conversely, he also thought that the reason uh, why bad things are done to people, people do bad things to each other, is because ultimately, you know, we tend to prioritize ourselves over others, our own associates over strangers. And uh, especially among those who are powerful, socially speaking, right? And they can get away with murder, so to speak. And they tend to have a, uh, they tend to have no qualms harming others in order to advance their their own interests. Yeah. But of course, not everyone was convinced by by his uh, arguments, of course. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I must say, from all the thought experiments in this book, this one was... Uh... It was one of those thought experiments that would catch you at a dilemma. You don't really know, like, if you have an opinion, when, when you're put into the thought experiment, you might betray your own <laughs> convictions there. So for the benefit of the audience, can you please describe what the thought experiment was? What is the thought experiment called impartial caretaker? Yeah, that was a name that was uh, given um, by Professor Brian Van Norden, actually. But, but anyway, to continue the part of that where I left off, so not everyone was convinced by the basic idea of impartial caring, right? And even the consequentialist, you know, broadly consequentialist reasoning that he gave, not everyone was convinced of it, especially among those powerful members of the elite. They think that they are morally superior to others, right? And they, they really thought that, okay, maybe it sounds like a good idea, maybe, uh, but it's still hard to put into practice. And this was when Mozi proposed his thought experiment. So we got to catch the, the context here. And this is how the thought experiment goes. Suppose there are two men, right? One holding on to impartial care. So that means that he, you know, he believes that one ought to, you know, you know, regard others the way they do themselves and, you know, strangers as they do their own associates. And uh, imagine that the other person um, does not hold to impartial care. They, they, they hold the partiality, right? So they, they think that it's okay, you know, the fact that you are not me gives me at least some degree of permission or reason to you know, regard you otherwise. And likewise, if you're not my associate, it's okay if I don't treat you as well as I treat my, my own associates, right? So you have the impartialist and you're the partialist. And uh, let's imagine that both of them are consistent in the way they behave according to what they believe. Now, here comes the thought experiment. Imagine that it's wartime and there you are ready in your armor, and helmet ready to join the battle. And of course, you don't know whether you're going to return, right? Warfare in ancient China is just as brutal as warfare in other parts of the world. And, uh, you know, you don't really know whether you're going to come back alive. So the question is this, would you entrust your loved ones, your parents and family, the ones who are dependent upon you, would you entrust them to the care of the partial man or would you entrust them to the care of the impartial man? And now, of course, we are assuming that these are meant to be exclusive choices because I have very smart students who once tried to play it both ways and say, maybe we just give it both, you know. <laughs> That's not what we want, right? So imagine that it's meant to be exclusive choice. And Mozi claims that in such occasions, everyone, including those who object to the idea of impartial care, would entrust their family to the impartial man as their caretaker. Okay, there is supposed to be a follow-up thought experiment. It's very similar to the first one. 
except that the choice is between an impartialist and a partialist ruler in the circumstance where the country is facing a severe pestilence and many people are dying. And again, Mozart claims that in such a scenario, even those who disapprove of impartial care would choose an impartial ruler rather than a partialist ruler. And of course, you know, it, likewise, we have to assume that uh, this is meant to be an exclusive choice. Are you convinced? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, well, as a matter of fact, when I read the thought experiment, I, I consider myself to be an impartialist, but when it comes into when, when it comes to the situation, they make a decision, making a decision is difficult. So I, I like the top thought experiment. I was trying to find someone who is uh, more for a partialist from a partial standpoint to kind of catch him and see what what he would say but yeah i'm sure most of the people would go in, in times of crisis they would go for impartialist uh caretaker but uh, l- let us discuss this thought experiment uh, a little bit further so for, first of all what does it highlight and i guess it does tell us something about the context uh, the, around the time when the thought experiment was devised which is a great universal thought experiment, I guess, because it's still something that after thousands of years we can still relate to and, and talk about, which 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 which, which uh, sounds very tangible, concrete. There'll be situations we might come across in everyday life. So w- what does it highlight? And then I'll ask you a, a, a further follow-up question later on. Yeah. Yeah, so to get to the point about what it highlights, I need, I need to be very blunt and, and say that on the face of it, is a rather unpersuasive thought experiment, okay, on the face of it. Uh, and for the following simple reason, because surely it makes a difference whether the partial caretaker or ruler is partial towards me and my loved ones. <laughs> right, I mean, you know, because someone who is partial, uh, it, you know, it, it depends on who he's partial to, right? Okay, so now if he, if he is partial to myself and my loved ones, then the caretaker or ruler who counts me as an associate will seem to be a superior choice to the impartial caretaker or ruler. And only after that, right, would the impartial caretaker and ruler be superior to the partial caretaker or ruler who counts me completely as a stranger, right? So there is something weird about the thought experiment, right? And then secondly, even if Mozi were right that, you know, someone who disapproves of impartial care would still choose the impartial caretaker and ruler, isn't it because when they do so, it's because that's the efficient way for them to advance their own partialist interests, right? So if so, then Mozi has at best shown that even partialist people can approve of impartial care when it is practiced by other people. He wouldn't have shown that the partialists have reason to practice impartial care themselves, isn't it, right? So, so I think that when you ask me, you know, what does it highlight? The first thing that comes to mind as a philosopher, unfortunately, is that I get critical, right? I start saying, no, there's something unpersuasive about this thought experiment. You know, there's a little bit like a false dilemma going on because it's not as if there are really only two choices. Even according to the terms of the experiment, there really should have been three. And then secondly, even if you go along with the outcome, it's not mm. clear that it really convinced us, right? Yeah, but I don't think this is the end of the story. I do have my mm. own reflections about it, right? Mm. And this is where you mentioned in your reflection that if if mm. if the imp- uh, if we're choosing impartial caretaker because of our own interest, that sort of defeats Moltz's purpose in devising that thought experiment. Yeah. Uh, so the question mm. is uh, whether it does do that. That's the question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. So well, you ask the question, does it not, does it defeat Mozart's purpose? Well, this is where it gets complicated because when I reflect upon this sort of experiment, my sense is that there's a kind of a yes and no answer involved, right? If Mozart expects his thought experiment to convince someone who is a partialist to become an impartialist, then he's being a little bit unrealistic. Either that or, he, or that, you know, he's not even aware that he's being unpersuasive, right? You know, um, but nonetheless, I think there is something to be said for the idea that like you, the way you point out just now, if the circumstances are extreme enough, the partialist caretaker or ruler, we can imagine how even such a person might still end up prioritizing those who are closer to him, right? And eventually himself, um, over myself, over me and my dependents, right? In contrast, presumably an impartialist caretaker and ruler will continue to give everyone equal regard, including my dependents. Now, so from this perspective, choosing the impartial caretaker ruler is, is a little bit like buying disaster insurance, okay? <laughs> right? Paying premiums and foregoing benefits in happy times so that a claim can be made in the very unfortunate event of a disaster. Even though one knows and hopes at least, you know, that one would never have to make these claims, right? So in a sense, it's like water is just flowing. I mean, the, mm. the money is just flowing away like water because if you don't claim, your premiums are not doing anything in a sense, right? But but that's the point of buying insurance mm. if you have to claim, you, you know, you, you are able to claim, right? Mm. Um, so that's, that's the first point. But I think there's a little bit more to this. I think we really shouldn't assume that Moses' intention was to persuade his audience that uh, they should practice impartial care through the thought experiments. If you remember the, the way the conversation started, remember that in the surviving text, the thought experiments are presented as speaking to audiences who have already dismissed the earlier argument from consequences. Mm. Don't forget that, right? And But despite their dismissal of their argument, Moses seems to want to still show them something. Even if they are not going to practice impartial caring, the question is, is there some other nearby position, some other nearby thing that I can at least get them to, right? And there is, and it is this, that the thought experiment does give them a reason to believe that even if you're not going to practice impartial caring yourself, it can still be in your interest that other people practice impartial caring. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And that is a very important outcome, right? Mm. Because after all, not everyone is going to be partial towards them in particular and circumstances can arise in which they need other people's help. So they have reason to want other people to practice impartial care, right? even mm. if they themselves are going to. And here's the even, shall we say, slightly naughtier extension to this reason, <laughs> which is if you really you know, go the whole, you know, go through the whole logic of that, then they have reason not to oppose Mozart's preaching of impartial caring too, right? Because you want other people to practice impartial caring. So that means that you actually want Mozart to go around preaching impartial care <laughs> to convert more people to be mm. impartialists so that you can reap the benefit of living in a world like this, right? In fact, to be even naughtier, Mozart might even say that you have reason to encourage others to practice impartial caring yourself. Join me mm. as a Mozart, you know. <laughs> so, so, so even if you're, you know, or at least to support social arrangements that that support impartial caring. So that is a, in a sense, a surprising outcome, but it's quite in keeping mm. with the, the way the text goes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and as as you just explained, it's a very complex thought experiment, and 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 there are many different layers to it. Uh, but if we 
we assume that our society is organized around impartial care. Uh, and I guess that was the ultimate, maybe that was the ultimate uh, goal of most, mostly. Uh, it, does it guarantee that the disadvantaged population, the downtrodden ones will fare any better in society? That is well, organized around this idea. Of... Mm. Yeah, that's supposed to be the idea. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know, we are supposed to be more other people, we are supposed to be knowledgeable about social science. So uh, one part of me wants to say that I want to see the data, <laughs> you know. But I think that uh, Moses is quite confident about this. He even has a passage ostensibly quoting from ancient texts where he says that if our society is really organized like this, then the aged without support and the orphaned will be taken care of. Those with sharp eyes and keen ears, is it the other way around? Sharp ears and keen eyes, sorry. <laughs> and, and sturdy limbs will use their advantages to help others. Yeah, so I think he's quite confident of that. And mm. and emotionally, at least, I feel like he's in the right spot. Uh, so personally, I don't think he's wrong. Mm. You know, but, you know, as we say nowadays, I would love to see the data. <laughs> so I wish there is a natural, not a thought experiment, but a natural experiment where we can observe actual people behaving like this, right? Mm. Personally, I think that in general, he's not wrong. Um, here's another reason why I think he's not wrong. Because if a society really is organized around impartial caring, um, you know, then there's a sense in which people's attitudes are quite different from the way we assume them to be, you know, in ourselves. So I think that, you know, that's a kind of a very optimistic assumption. But what that really means is that, like the objecting of interlocutor, if mm. I have any doubts, it's not really about what happens if we get there. It's about whether we can really get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, and before we end the conversation, any further thoughts on this uh, thought experiment? Yeah, so so this is slightly more speculative uh, and it's in the book also, but I think a final further thought for me about Moses' intentions, right? So earlier, I suggested that rather than think about the thought experiment as trying to argue the partialist to become an impartialist, he's probably better taken as you know, helping them see that it's to their advantage, to their interest, that other people are impartialists. But I think there is another thing that we, we should notice is so he is, by getting them to do that experiment, in a sense, inviting them that to, to think in a certain way from a certain perspective that um, they may not be used to. Why? Because just in order for you to get into the spirit of the thought experiment, you have to begin to see and calculate and rationalize things from the perspective of someone without the power to shield yourself and your dependence from the ravages of circumstance, right? Think about both thought experiments, right? The thought experiments don't make any sense if you can assume a way that I don't, I don't need anyone to look after my, 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 my family because we are, we are really we are well, we are good, right? Even if I die, we are good, right? Or in the second case, oh, I'm the king. So who's talking about choosing what again, <laughs> right? Notice that. So in both thought experiments, you are being deliberately asked to rationalize and to think through their choices before you from the point of view of someone who may not have access to these advantages, okay? Uh, rather than someone who has access to social advantages from which you don't need to worry about such things, right? And again, I think we need to keep in mind that his primary audience is the social and political elite. Mm. Now, now what, what is happening when we do this, right? By having the interlocutor vicariously share in what can be seen from the point of view of the disadvantage where they feel like they need a bit of help, 
I think that he's really placing them in a position where they come to share intuitions that they may not have otherwise. Mm. Right? Intuition that impartial caring is really what morality requires. And this is something that we are familiar with because not always, but often, we become much more sympathetic to those in need. Mm. If we are able to imagine ourselves in their shoes, not just intellectually, but to feel as if we are the ones who need help, then we realize that, yeah, you know, when we step out of that, we realize that, yeah, you know, this is mm. something more general. It's not just mm. for me. Yeah. Dr. Loy, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and talking about this fabulous thought experiment. You're most welcome. Happy to be here. Our next contributor uh, to this podcast is Professor Eric Schlizer, who is going to talk to us about the thought experiment in this book called uh, uh, Seeing Color for the First Time, which is a thought experiment by uh, in the philosophy of religion. It's a thought experiment by Ibnatophile. And uh, Professor Eric Schlizer has uh, written a reflection on that thought experiment. Eric, welcome. Thank you. Um maybe to make a slight correction the book it's from is uh, so you show you you have to edit the volume but the thought experiment itself is from a 12th century book called hi ibn yaksan mm. um written by ibn tufal a uh, spanish or andalusian arab islamic uh, philosopher Oh, yeah. Thank you very much for this uh, correction. Yeah. yeah. I was going to actually yeah. ask you where the original thought experiment came from, which you've just mentioned. But yeah. uh, before we start, can you describe the thought experiment to us first? Yeah. So um, it involves a man uh, born blind. Uh, I don't think it's very important that it's a man. It could be a woman as well. Um, but uh, somebody who's born blind in a particular city and who... Um, who grows up there and really uh, 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 knows his way around the city and all the sites um, and all the locations in the city and knows everything about the infrastructure and uh, uh, layout of the place and is told by others uh, what the colors of everything are. And then one day this person uh, regains sight, uh, say through cataract operation, um, and then um, can see the city. And the thought experiment claims that this person actually uh, will have, uh, will know everything he encounters, um, but that two things change in this person. Um, uh, so the, the colors are as he imagines, the, the places are as, 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 as he experienced. Um, but two things are new. Number one, he sees the city with greater clarity. And number two, uh, this person will feel great joy. Um, that's the thought experiment. Um, um, in the beginning, you mentioned that this is a thought experiment by Ibn Tufayl. So could you please tell us who he was, what his philosophy was about? He was a Muslim philosopher. So can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, he, um, um, he grew up near Granada in the now southern Spain. And uh, he was a physician, uh, which I think this thought experiment also suggests, uh, and a philosopher, and actually really a, a polymath in many ways. Uh, um, he, he became a political advisor uh, to the local and very important emir. Um, and he also cultivated an intellectual uh, circle of friends. He was, a, he was a student of an important thinker called Ibn Baja, who probably, or in many ways, was the first 
a really important uh, Andalusian philosopher, and he was the teacher of, uh, uh, yeah, the greatest uh, Islamic philosopher in history, uh, Averroes or uh, um, Ibn Rushd, um, and uh, and he he had to introduce Ibn Rushd to the uh, to the Emir. Um, so his life um, uh, is very interesting because he has this kind of scientific intellectual side, and he has this kind of political uh, uh, side that they combine in him. Um, I don't know that much about his uh, 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 scientific activities, but it is known that he was uh, also an astronomer. And interestingly enough, other astronomers all credit him uh, uh, with anticipating some of his own their own views. And he was a he was a critic of Ptolemy, uh, the ancient most important uh, astronomer. Um, and in many ways, he prepared the way for kind of um, a uh, new kind of astronomy where rather than working with rational principles, you'd work with empirical uh, uh, patterns. Um, and that's important because the, the story from which this thought experiment comes is itself uh, yeah, one of the greatest works, I think, in intellectual history. Um, I discovered it as a teacher and uh, I started teaching it every year because it's so beautiful. Uh, it's about a young man who grows up on an island and, uh, and teaches himself uh, biology and cosmology and astronomy and has this uh, a spiritual ascent. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and it's infused with mysticism and uh, Sufi ideas that kind of combine uh, intellectual and mystical elements. Um, but the, the spiritual journey gets uh, gets interrupted by a visit from uh, uh, exile from another place, and politics enters into the into the story. Uh, you'll have to read it yourself. I'm not going to uh, give away all the clues, but the thought experiment comes from uh, a kind of literary framework that uh, surrounds the actual narrative, and uh, and the thought experiment is itself meant to illustrate the kind of wisdom one might get from studying Eastern philosophy. And remember, Andalusia is in the far west of the Islamic world. Um, and Eastern philosophy here means uh, Ibn Sena, uh, perhaps Al-Farabi, uh, the great Persian, and even uh, Asian thinkers of the period. Uh and the book you meant, uh, the book that you just mentioned, from which the thought experiment comes from, it, it comes from. It, it has been translated into English, I'm guessing. Yes, there's a there there, there are two uh, very interesting translations. One is a late 17th century translation by an English guy called Oakley, um, mm -hmm. and uh, so we know, and that was translated from the Latin. So we know that the text was available in 17th century, early modern period. Um, and the Oakley translation you can find, uh, you know, online, um, mm. and uh, it's for free. And then there's a trans 20th century translation by uh, a guy called Len Goodman, uh, which uh, is the one I initially had. It's a paperback, University of Chicago. And that one has an uh, enormous amount of endnotes, so you can kind of mm. figure out what all the allusions and references are. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, but it's, it's fun to read the Oakley one because... There's good reason to believe that uh, Daniel Defoe's uh, uh, Robinson Crusoe is kind of inspired by this book. And then you oh. kind of see what Defoe would have read. 
so there, there's all kinds of other reasons to since I know you have an English lit background. That's what yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really tempted now to check the book. <laughs> um, when you were describing thought experiments, so this guy sees color for the first time, everything is exactly as it had been described to him, but there yeah. are two new aspects to his experience. One is that it's clarity. The other one is delight and emotion. So these are the two new yeah. aspects of of his new experience yeah. this blind guy seeing colors for the first time but how does it enrich the experience how does it add to the experience can you elaborate on these two aspects yeah so that's a that's an, uh, a deep and tough question so we know that the thought experiment is meant to illustrate what it's like to have a kind of mystical experience right um, or uh, uh, kind of indicate that and what's uh, in the proofs indicating here is that in a mystical experience, you don't really gain a new scientific knowledge of the world. You don't really gain any new propositional claims about the world. Sorry for the philosophical jargon. What you what happens is, is that you see the world in a in a in a sharper or clearer way, um, and and that that features that you already know stand out in a new way to you. So that's, that's I think, is, is really important. Uh, um, and then the other uh, aspect of it is, is this intellectual delight, this joy. And I think um, um, that's meant to uh, indicate that uh, seeing the world in this way is seeing God's creation in a new way, and it brings you closer to God. Um, now, the, the idea of God that the Islamic philosophers have is incredibly abstract. It's not the man who's a long beard. It's, uh, it's itself a kind of rational principle or the organization um, of the universe. Um, and uh, so I think, uh, uh, and, and there's a, a feature to the view that's uh, unintuitive, and that is since all of us are God's creation, what we really are experiencing is uh, being part of God or being identical to God when we when we have this kind of spiritual experience. And that's mm. a lot to attribute to a simple thought experiment. Uh, but this thought experiment is introduced with the thought, look, uh, I'm going to try to give you a glimpse of what it's like to have this mystical experience. And a mystical experience is... is to put this in modern terms, is to go from black and white TV to color TV. Mm. Um, and, and in color, but knowing that colors exist, um, and knowing even somewhat counterintuitively what it would be like to experience color, um, but even so, experiencing itself gives, adds something to your, to, to your stock of, of understanding. Mm -hmm. I hope that helps. It, it does, yeah. I find it fascinating that there is this element of affect or emotion in this experience. So you, yeah. it, it's not all about, uh, you know, mathematically seeing or experiencing the word, but there is this, this this emotional aspect to it as well. And if I'm not wrong, and this was going to be my next question, so you could correct me if I'm wrong, this is how it relates to, uh, I don't want to use the term Eastern philosophy because I know I'm being terribly reductive. <laughs> <laughs> but <Yes. laughs> but in terms of this experience, this this thought experiment. So how, how does it relate to Eastern philosophy? Because you do mention a few points about that in your reflection yeah. on this thought experiment. Yes. Yeah, so I, I actually think that uh, uh, 
it's, your terminology here is actually correct because Ibn Tufal situates himself as a Western philosopher vis-a-vis the, the East, right? Now, this is within an Islamic intellectual culture, uh, but I actually think, and I sometimes tease my students that, you know, Ibn Tufal is working in the far, far Western part of Europe, um, and he's understanding himself in relationship to this intellectual center, which is the East. Um, but um, um, in the period, uh, manuscripts are not circulating uh, incredibly well. So he also has to guess sometimes what these great philosophers of the East are writing about. Um, but he is assuming, and I think he's right about this, that even Sena uh, and also Al-Ghazali, another very important yeah. Persian thinker, uh, combine rational and spiritual elements. Um, mm. and, um, and they do this both as Islamic thinkers, as, as reflecting on uh, Quran and its uh, teachings, but also as students of Plato and Aristotle. Um, this is true of nearly all of them. Al-Ghazali less so than Ibn Sena, and, um, and Ibn Tufal understands himself as, as bringing this kind of knowledge that uh, one's engagement with, with, with knowledge isn't merely intellectual, but also, as you put it, uh, emotional and spiritual. Um, and in many ways, if we look ahead, uh, we see this in Descartes and Isaac Newton and Leibniz yeah. as well. It's not like this is in some ways unknown to scholars of, uh, mm. of intellectual life. Um, um, uh, did I answer your question or did I? Yes, yes, it did. Thank oh, you. It, it, uh, it does shed light on the asp- uh, uh, on, 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 on Eastern philosophy and also uh, Islamic philosophies. You mentioned part of the experience is also about union with God, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. This yes, element of experience. Yeah. 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 Uh, Professor Eric Schlieser, uh, thank you very much for your time and um, talking to us about this thought experiment. Great. Thank you for having me.